God has more and more and more for us. As he comes to us in worship and as we look at his word together. Well, if you've got your sermon notes, um, you'll notice that uh, uh, at the top I've included uh, a Passion for Life logo. That's to remind us that we are in the process of preparing for mission uh, with two other churches, the Baptist Church and uh, Christ Church. Um, but also, um, um, I trust that um, when we look at the passage of Scripture this morning, you'll see the relevance of that, or, although we didn't choose 1 Peter particularly because it linked in with the mission. I think there are elements of today's uh, word that um, will quite, be quite appropriate for this phase that we're in, which is building bridges, as Steve said, uh, with people in the community, whether they're friends, relations, or otherwise. They're just people that don't know Jesus. And um, you'll see that I've, I've called the, the study as uh, being counter-cultural Christianity uh, that commends the gospel. Um, Peter tells us that um, we are to live as aliens and strangers in the world. And this means that on occasions we will swim against the tide uh, because we're aliens and strangers. We're not strangers to the people necessarily, but we're strangers to the standards and values of the world. And we will uh, swim against the tide, or another metaphor would be we'll go against the grain, um, or we'll not go with the flow, uh, as the case may be. Um, So we say, well, how will this commend the gospel? If we're at odds with people and the the values, how will that commend the gospel? Well, Well, hopefully we'll see in what Peter has to say a bit later. Um, Jesus was countercultural, wasn't he? Uh, he came to bring a kingdom that was not of this world. He said, my kingdom is, is not of this world, otherwise my servants would fight, um, trying to protect him. But he had none of that because he had a way to go uh, to the cross. Jesus and his kingdom was countercultural, And so much so that they put him to death. Um, he brought light and there were those who preferred darkness rather than light and they put him to death. Um, This clash of kingdoms or or culture, we can look at it in two aspects. We can look at it in terms of the rule of law. In other words, the laws of the land. Uh, Is there any aspect that we're counter-cultural to that? Or we can look at it in relation to the prevailing values and standards of our society, the way people look at things, their attitudes. Uh, Are we counter-cultural in respect to that. Well, let me first of all um, mention briefly the rule of law. I know uh, Steve dealt with this very helpfully last week, but just to put it in context, because when we come to chapter 3, as we are today, um, he says, in the same way. So it relates to the previous passage, right? So it's, that's quite important. But that's the rule of law. Um, there are quite a few of you that are of my generation, and probably you can remember back to your childhood. I didn't say old. No, we're not old. It's just just, just a generation. Remember your childhood when there was not uh, really much conflict between the law of the land uh, and the Bible, the standards expressed in the Bible. But we've seen a divergence uh, in our lifetime which has seemed to be accelerated recently. There are a number of 
acts of parliament that actually have chipped away at our Christian heritage. The Christianizing of our land has been chipped away. Uh, and so it will become increasingly difficult for Christians to stay true to the Bible and possibly keep within the law without compromising their standards. If you've been watching the news, you'll notice that the Pope has had something to say. Um, it's great that he can actually get up and say something and people have to take notice of it in some ways, isn't it? But it's relating to this issue. One news report says this, Pope Benedict has criticised the Equality Bill currently going through Parliament, claiming it violates the natural law. Well, we would understand that to be it violates God's law. All right. Church leaders are said to be worried that the bill might expose them to legal challenges if they refuse to employ openly gay people or transsexuals. You're probably aware of the fact that as a Christian church, um, we can register as we have done as a charity. That gives us privileges. It means that we can claim back tax that you guys pay. Uh, It means that we don't pay rates, as it were, on our premises. There are privileges. But if these laws continue the way they are, Um, If we can't conform to those laws, then it's possible those privileges, that will be the first thing, those privileges will be withdrawn. So then, in spite of this trend, as Steve reminded us last week, um, Peter challenges us by saying that the rule of law is God-given and that where that law does not conflict with God's law, We have an obligation before God, and Peter uses the term for the Lord's sake, to obey it and respect and honour those who have been put in positions to administer that law. And although we are to obey God rather than men, if if it comes to the push, nevertheless we are still to honour those in our society and honour those who are in authority. And We have to see that it's to do with heart attitude. It isn't just what we do. It's our attitude towards them. And I would like to suggest that right at this time we have an opportunity to be countercultural. We all know that um, because of recent exposure of some of our politicians' shortcomings, things like their expenses and what may have gone on during the preparation for the Iraq war, that there is a growing mistrust and a cynicism that is prevailing regarding uh, those who are in authority over us. And, um, you know, I believe that's very unhealthy for our nation and it's something that we should resist uh, because we are to honour those who are in authority over us. It's not because we don't see their faults or they shouldn't be brought to account for their misdemeanours, but God says we should honour them. So, you know, the process of law in in sorting things out can be fine, but our response should be that we honour them and we don't ridicule them and and we don't act with cynicism towards them. So today, in the same context of honouring authority, we move to the domestic front and um, here there is potential for a clash with many of the prevailing um, attitudes of our society. But also, it's an opportunity to be countercultural and I trust we'll see a way of commending the gospel. So let's read then um, the first uh, seven verses uh, of 1 Peter. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that any, if any of them do not believe the word, 
they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty, sorry, when you see the reverence and beauty of your lives, sorry, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewellery and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in the sight of God. For this is the way the holy women of the past put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands. Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life that nothing will hinder your prayers. Father God, we, we ask you, Lord, that our culture, our inner culture, may be shaped by your word. Lord, we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, rather strong words, aren't they, of um, Peter's opening phrase here. And um, those who have a a very strong um, feminist agenda might be really offended by this. You know, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. But there's also another consideration here, and that is that there are many um, women who have suffered abuse from men. Um, Men have used what authority they have uh, harshly, and women have suffered, they've been abused. And we need to just recognise that when we come to scriptures like this, Uh, because when they look at it, they will think, I just don't know how to handle this. How How do I handle this? And of course, the issue really is not to throw the baby out with the bathwater because of misuse, but to find God's right use in it. And that's what we want to try and do this morning. So maybe to the feminist, it's a red rag to the bull, or to a bull, um, but or we might say, is it revelation uh, of God's created order? I guess there's two questions you can ask about this phrase, and I'm just looking for a moment at this opening phrase, wives in the same way submit, be, uh, be submissive to your husbands. First question is why, and, and in actual fact, um, Peter gives us one reason. It's a very practical reason. He says, if any of them, that's the husbands, do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives. So there's one positive outcome that's, that's demonstrated there. But I want to suggest to you that there is a, a more fundamental reason um, why um, we should obey or the folks should obey this particular command and that is because it's part of our understanding of God's creational order uh, for manhood and womanhood and that's very important. It might well be the feminists or others who discount the teachings particularly of Paul but also of Peter and say well they are just cultural, they were men of their time and um, they were expressing views that were a reflection of their culture And since culture has changed, it's no longer relevant. But we find that in many cases, the apostles were countercultural, And when they made an appeal, they made an appeal to creation, not to culture. 
It was going back to um, the way God says things should be. And I guess if we're going to have um, any understanding and can sit easily with this scripture, we have to start from the position and say, as God as creator and sustainer of all things, um, does he have the right to say how things should be? Do you believe that God has the, the first right to say how things should be? So culture must follow the way God says things should be, not the scriptures have to follow the way culture says things should be. And we need to settle that in our minds because we need to understand what God has to say. And what I've done here in the next section um, is just to review something that I spoke about um, some time back when we looked at 1 Corinthians. If you can remember, we went through 1 Corinthians. It's probably longer ago than you think. But when we looked at um, chapter 11, where um, Paul talks about the relationship between men and women in worship, uh, and the headship of man in that situation, um, then we looked at um, the um, account of creation in Genesis and saw God's order for biblical manhood and womanhood. Believe it or not, that was November uh, 2008. It was, that, it was that long ago. It doesn't seem that long ago to me that we looked at it. So what I want to do quite briefly at this point is just to remind us of what is the foundation of this teaching um, from Genesis. So you can follow it through on your notes there, but I'm just going to read one or two scriptures associated with it and see. But the first point is that men and women are of equal value to God and are individually distinctive in their reflection of his image. We know that we are made, human beings are made in the image of God. But I think um, Genesis 5.1 gives us a little bit further insight into that. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in, his like, in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. I believe in God expressing his image in mankind, there is something which is feminine about that as well as masculine about that. And if we are to see completely um, the image of God in man, then we, rec- we need to recognise the distinctives between men and women and not seek to blur them as our society does. We find that, that the society wants to merge it and to say there is no distinction, there's no difference, everybody can do the same things, there's no problem about that. But I think we often lose the distinctiveness. And so that's the first point I want to make, that there is a distinctiveness that is a reflection of God himself. And that is a reflection of the Trinity. We know Father, Son and Holy Spirit are equal in importance, in power and in other attributes, but they have different functions and there is leadership from the Father. The theologians talk about an economy in the Godhead, in the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, in the Trinity. And we find that the Son willingly submits to the Father. The Father sends the Son and the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. So the distinctiveness and the functions of men and women somehow reflect the Trinity. Men and women, equal in importance, have complementary functions. Man's is leadership. Adam was given primary primary responsibility as God's representative in the care of the earth. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden 
to work it and take care of it. Eve was given the unique and complementary role of assisting Adam in this responsibility. Genesis 2.18 The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. In other words, there was some incompleteness about man there. I will make a helper suitable for him. Adam named the animals and he named Eve woman. And in the Old Testament, to name the right to name someone implied authority. The prohibitions in the garden were given to Adam and they were his responsibility to keep. You remember God said to Adam, you can eat of all the trees in the garden. They're all yours to enjoy. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat. That was Adam's responsibility to keep that. Then the serpent, Satan, came first to Eve, tempting her to take on a leadership role in a disobeying God. Adam was there. If you read the account, Adam was there and he abdicated his responsibility to watch over his wife and to take responsibility. After the fall, God called Adam to account first, not Eve. It was Adam who had to give an account of the sin that they had committed. So what we find then, that there is equality and there is leadership uh, as defined by God in the creation order. So that's, if you like, the why. We've given two whys. The first why was um, you can influence your husband for good. Uh, secondly, the second why is because it's foundational. And we must accept, come to that point and accept that, otherwise everything else seems to be out of place. So that's the why. But what does it mean? We can say that's the why, but what does it actually mean when it says, wives in the same way, be submissive to your husbands? Let's look at what it doesn't mean, first of all. And I'm going to go fairly quickly through these because I hope that maybe you'll pick up some of these um, in your cell group. But what it does not mean, putting the husband in the place of Christ. For every individual who belongs to God through Jesus Christ, Jesus is their ultimate authority. And the husband is never meant to be in the place of Christ. It doesn't mean giving up independent thought. The suggestion here is that the woman's already exercised some independent thought by believing in Jesus when her husband hasn't. That's the example given. And so... You know, women need, we need all the creative and independent thought that women have. Um, that's not to be squashed. Uh, it does not mean giving up efforts to influence and guide her husband. It's all about attitude. Um, a woman can very well come alongside her husband and suggest uh, and encourage him in various ways. I am so grateful that in, in our marriage, Joe's not afraid to, to tell me things point out things to me. All right. I'm very grateful for that. I'm grateful that she'll give me an opinion on things that perhaps other people are afraid to do. But I really value that. It's so, so important. I need her creative thought in our marriage. It doesn't mean uh, give in to every demand of her husband. I'll come back very briefly to the issue of abuse. Um, Whilst I'm convinced that women should should maintain um, the sense of respect and honour for their husbands. Nevertheless, I don't think a woman has to remain under a, a, 
regime of re abuse in the home um, if the husband will not repent. Uh, I don't think, there's some teaching that says, well, the woman just has to stay there and stick with it, you know. I'm not convinced that is the case. Now, I know it's, you have to look at the detail of that. But, uh, but under those circumstances, the husband has totally um, abdicated his responsibility to care for his wife. And it's not unreasonable that she removes herself from that situation if it becomes intolerable. It doesn't mean lesser intelligence and competence. The marriage is a team, okay, and we need all the gifts and talents and intellect of, of every team member. So it's most important. It doesn't mean that the husband makes all the decisions and decides everything that happens in the home. It doesn't mean being fearful and timid, and it certainly doesn't mean a lack of equality in Christ. Scriptures make it clear that in the New Covenant, uh, there is no male or female, no Jew, no Greek, no bond, no free. All have equal importance in, uh, to God in Jesus Christ. So submission then, what it does mean. Notice um, Peter says, in the same way. He's following on from what he was saying. He'd given illustrations of the ways in which um, in, in, to get regarding the civil authorities that we need to submit. And you could look at, in various areas of life, you could be in the armed forces and the way that a soldier needs to submit to his commanding officer and so on. These will all be slightly different. But what he's saying is it's about the attitude. It's about recognising authority, not rebelling against authority. Secondly, making a choice to affirm her husband's authority and leadership within the limits of obedience to Christ. She makes this choice, not out of fear, but out of a knowledge that she's doing God's will. Thirdly, with an inner quality of gentleness that affirms the husband's leadership, it is a heart attitude of reverence for God and his order. Gentle and quiet spirit. Actually, this is rather reflective of the way that we should all behave towards one another. If you think about the teaching in the New Testament about how Christians should behave towards one another, um, you know, we are not to be insisting our own way, demanding our rights, not pushy, not self-assertive. And this should be exemplified, I think, is being taught here in the relationship between the wife and the husband. This is how she would often operate towards and towards her husband. And such um, a gentle and quiet spirit will be uh, beautiful before other people, even an unbelieving husband. And this is the point he is making here. It will have a positive effect uh, on the unbelieving husband. Unfading beauty of character in contrast to the fleeting beauty of outward adornment. Who is aware of fleeting beauty? Yeah. <laughs> we all are, aren't we? But this is countercultural, isn't it? If you think about it, the media um, really prizes often very young and beautiful and well dressed and, uh, and all the cracks filled up, you know, Botox or whatever it is, and, and have a face job and all of it. It's all about outward appearance. and. I don't take the magazines, but I've occasionally in the barbers or in the dentist picked up Hello magazine or OK magazine. 
and here full of beautiful people, right? Beautiful people in wonderful clothes and in wonderful circumstances. Uh, but you know that many of them have got failed marriages and all sorts of problems in their life. And it's, it's the emphasis here. I'm sure Peter is not saying that wives should be dowdy and not give attention to their appearance, but it's the emphasis that, that these things are not going to last, are they? We're all fighting it, aren't we? In one way or another, we're all, all fighting it. And, um, you know, the cosmetics and things will, will help us if we apply them correctly, but, but the point is, it's about... <laughs> well, uh, you know what I mean, you know. <laughs> but, um, but the point is, his saying is, there is an unfading, an unfading beauty of character uh, which suggests it has heavenly realities and it's not subject to ageing or decay, not fading away with the passing of time. So that's very important, isn't it? And I, I'm sure we've all um, known people that maybe outwardly aren't so immediately attractive, but when you start to talk to them, there is a beauty that actually shines through. And um, I've seen this particularly with older ladies. There's just a wonderful beauty that shines through, and it's got nothing to do with the outward appearance whatsoever. Then point five, there is quiet confidence in God that she can submit to her husband's leadership without fear that it will ultimately be harmful to her well-being or personhood. But the particular point that Peter makes is about winning an unsaved husband. He says, win them over by behaviour and not words. And I think there's a great temptation here um, for newly converted women to really be anxious to convert their husbands. And we have to face it that in most cases women, there are women come to faith before their husbands. That's the t- statistic. And there are still more women in church than there are men. So you can understand it, can't you, that she wants her husband to be saved. But she needs wisdom uh, in this. You know, because you know, she doesn't want to antagonise him with her religion. She's got religion by her preaching, criticising or neglecting. It must be a great temptation for a lady who comes to faith. She's got a new family, a new interest. She's hungry for God. She wants to study the word of God. She wants to be involved in the church. But she has a responsibility to her husband. And um, this, is, this needs such, such wisdom. And really, you want to get to the situation where the husband says, um, there's something great that's happened to you, I want to know what it is. I don't know if this is a true story, but I heard how this, this uh, man um, knocks on the vicar's door and goes barging in, and he said, what have you been doing to my wife? And the vicar is very defensive. He said, she's more loving, she's more attentive, I get better food. He went through a whole list of different things. I want to know what you've done to her. You know, and of course, he was able to share the gospel. But that's how it should be. that The husband should feel he's got a better wife because she's become a believer, not an absentee wife, which can so easily happen. I recognise the temptation. For the husband then, what it does not mean, harsh or domineering use of authority saying to the woman or the, the wife that, that she must be submissive to her husband is not licensed for the husband to be domineering or abusive. 
Secondly, taking advantage of her weakness. Um, He doesn't tell us what he means, but he says, and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. I don't know what he means by weakness, but we could suggest that, first of all, it's physical strength. In most cases, men are stronger than women. That's probably why most domestic violence is men committing that against women rather than the other way around. I'm sure it does happen the other way around sometimes, but in most cases, it's recognised that men are stronger and they need to recognise that and act accordingly. And then, possibly, emotional sensitivity. I think we all recognise that women are more emotionally sensitive than men. And that's an advantage, that's a plus point. Because in a marriage situation, you know, women will be able to give some insights that men have overlooked, have thought of, of, no, of no particular interest. And the woman is able to bring something because she, she is more sensitive to that situation. But equally, the husband needs to recognise this sensitivity and maybe shield his wife from some of the pressures that come to the family and to make sure that she doesn't bear the burden that he should be bearing. So it's very important to recognise that. And what it does not mean is lesser importance for the wife. The husband and wife are joint heirs, he says, of eternal life. What it does mean, considerate leadership is not an option for husbands. This is not a special way of husbands treating their wives. It is the biblical way that they need to be considerate towards their wives. Uh, he should be sacrificially sorry he should sacrificially care uh, for his wife. If you're familiar with Ephesians chapter 5, I'll read that. This is Paul speaking, of course, and he is comparing the husband's attitude to his wife as Christ's attitude to the church. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his, wife, sorry, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church for we are members of his body. So then, the husband needs to be considerate in a sacrificial way. He should not opt out of family leadership and become passive and a non-participant in decisions and activity. There are some men who do that. They leave everything to their wives. They don't take responsibility. Now, I do realise that sometimes men might be out um, you know, to, on business during the day a lot of the time. He has to delegate some of the responsibility to his wife regarding the upbringing of the children and so on. But the ultimate responsibility must be with the man and he should not opt out uh, of his responsibilities. Peter says something interesting about hindering prayers here. He said it affects your prayers. It's a reward by way of a warning. He's really saying if you want your prayers to be effective then make sure that you're considerate towards your wife. I wonder what that means. One commentator put it this way. God is so concerned that Christian husbands live in an understanding and loving way with their wives that he interrupts his relationship with them when they do not do so. 
And I think this comes down to the fact that it, it's easy to put our spiritual disciplines in a compartment that, which would include prayer. My prayer life is fine, I'm having a great time with God, but don't ask me to look after my wife, that's something quite different. And I think in, in every areas of, uh, area of life, God is concerned about the way we behave and the way we respond to one another. And our, our prayers could well be ineffective if we've dismissed that and felt it was unimportant. So I think that's a very important thing, that we should not separate our spiritual disciplines from life itself. Right then, let's come to a conclusion. Within a healthy Christian marriage, there will be a large element of mutual consultation and seeking of wisdom, and most decisions will come by consensus. I'm sure those of you here that are married... Um, would say that, that it's a partnership uh, and that we bring our own talents and insights uh, to that partnership. And most things come uh, by consensus, but the final responsibility will lie with the husband. And I believe just as um, God held Adam to account, God will hold husbands uh, to account uh, for the way that they've led and cared for their wives. I believe that's very scripture and basic. And this is for the wife's protection and well-being. It's very important. It isn't about men dominating their wives. It's providing an atmosphere for growth and protection and well-being. And this is why. And, but in the process, and Peter says, uh, recognise God's authority, be submissive to your wives, sorry, be submissive to your husbands, um, uh, in the same way that you should be submissive to other authorities. Well, we've, we've raced through a lot of those points and maybe it will raise some discussion uh, in, in cell groups. There are some questions there. But what I'd like us to do is just, um, just stand for a moment. We've got a few moments. And um, let's stand before God. And let's, let's ask God what, what is our... What is our attitude to authority wherever we find it? Right? What, what's your attitude to authority? Whether it's a school teacher, whether it's an employer, whether it's somebody representing the government, whether it's something in home. Let's stand together, shall we? Okay. Just ask yourself, does... God have the right to say how things should be? How is your understanding, your insight taught? Is it taught mainly by the society in which we live, the media, or is it taught by the word of God? Think about the areas of, of your life maybe where you feel you're going uh, against the grain or against the flow. Before God, how do you feel about that? Do you feel resentful? Is there a hint of rebellion anywhere there? 
God is looking for a heart attitude that acknowledges his order in the world. It's not a perfect world. The authorities are not perfect. But that's not a get-out clause for us. Father, we thank you that you've not only told us what to do, and that would be enough. Your Lord, you can say do this and we should do it without question, but Lord, you've given us insights into your creative order. Lord, how that this world should run under your ultimate lordship and under your ultimate authority. Lord, will you help us? Will you help us even now, Lord, to joyfully accept your way. Lord, joyfully accept your authority and the authority wherever we find it, knowing, Lord, that we can, um, through honouring authority, be a witness. Uh, we can be a testimony uh, to your rule and reign in our lives. Father, I want to pray this morning for any who've been subject to any abuse of authority, any abuse of strength, any abuse of position and privilege. Father, I want to pray for your healing. Father, I want to pray that you'll remove the sting. Lord, that, that the knowledge Lord, of, of your order and, and your perfect way will just help such people, and Lord, to find peace uh, and fulfilment, even now, moving on, Lord, into the, fu the fullness of all that you have for us. Lord, we know that there is much abuse in the world. It comes to our attention through the media, and Father, we deplore it. Um, we say there's, there's no um, possible way that, that the correct interpretation of, of your way should ever produce such abuse. And Lord, we cling to you, but we do ask you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy towards any, Father, who have suffered, particularly um, uh, men who have been harsh uh, and, and destructive towards women. Lord, please, will you bring your peace and your healing this morning? Going to bring our meeting to a close. If this or anything else has raised issues and you'd like prayer, then please... Will you see us afterwards? We're here. We'll remain at the front here um, if you'd like some prayer. Thank you.